know, all the times of the year to go to Switzerland, I picked the rainy, cold, snowy, nasty time of year. I think it'll probably actually be pretty nice there. Actually, it'll be nicer there than it is here right now. And you didn't really pick that time. No. It was just kind of circumstance. It happened. Yeah. Hi, I'm George Tekmachev here with Steve the... Weltmeister. Anderson. You got me that time. (laughs) (laughs) What's the full title? Uh, Feldbogen Weltmeisterschaft. All one word. Feldbogen Weltmeisterschaft is all one word in German. German's awesome language. Yeah. You know, in engineering school, I had to uh, learn to at least read, although I, you know, certainly can't speak and, you know, read German or or at least work out the meaning of stuff. Because a lot of, you know, technical journals and stuff are still published in German first. And anyway, it's a hell of a language. (laughs) Yes. All right. So we're uh, we're here for a podcast as uh, Steve is gearing up for the indoor season. I'm headed to Switzerland for the opening of the new World Archery Center, which is come along very nicely yep and i'm headed to sugar house that's uh an area here in salt lake city i'm gonna shoot the utah open in the basement boy (laughs) you know i think that if they were to move that event they'd probably double their participation maybe i don't know there's something uh, nostalgic about shooting in that hot sweaty basement yeah yeah so i enjoy it one of my favorite events you got a bunch of people coming into town for that nope i don't think so maybe i don't know all right, it, it, we could, but there's a lot of people over in in Europe. You know, people who would normally shoot these uh, these events, like some of the Montana guys, are still in Europe. Um, you got a few guys heading over to Switzerland, and then some guys who just aren't going to yeah, go. Yeah, now I think about it. Rio, Rio yeah. headed to. He asked me yesterday if I was flying out yesterday because he flew to the Paris the Salt Lake to Paris flight, mm-hmm. and uh, he's already there. Yeah, so you'll have some of that, and some guys getting ready to leave early for Bangkok. So, so yeah, yeah, it'd be. Uh, I don't expect it'll be quite like our our tournament at my my club. You, you know, know it won't I be were, that well attended. If I were inclined to go shoot Bangkok, this would be the best way to do it: is to fly to Switzerland and then continue on. Yeah, just go to Bangkok because it's a relatively there. short flight, relatively from Bangkok from from Switzerland. Yeah, it's probably eight nine hours. Yeah, compared to compared to twenty two. Yeah, 22 compared to total two hours. two ten hour flights or yeah, whatever. It's, yeah, it's it's worse than that actually. So. Yeah, um, I, I wish I'd thought of that sooner, but I didn't. So yeah, makes sense for Rio to do that. Let's jump into some podcast questions. We got a couple of those, All and right. um, it's Kelsey Schaefer who's asking this one. Uh, George and Big Cat, George's comment about sympathetic movement of the pinky while moving the ring finger had me wondering. It's actually the other way around, Kelsey. It's if you move the pinky, the ring finger goes along for the ride. But your your question is interesting. Uh, is a two finger release or a four finger release? Does one have the advantage over the other? Uh, and and uh, that's an interesting question. Two finger release versus a four finger release. I don't think so. From the context of what I brought up with regard to the pinky rest on the tab thing, I think it's strictly a matter of how much uh, loading and how how far your elbow comes around and that kind of thing. The geometry that's created by that four finger release and maybe how relaxed your hand is. I think that's probably more to it is is the uh, some people can't relax their pinky, right? And for some people that might work because they they will basically apply tension to their pinky like on a three finger release, and that will effectively move the uh, ring finger just a touch, you know, and that can help trigger release. Um, I tend to be able to, to 
have the pinky fairly relaxed and, and just move probably more of a, a relaxation of the index finger than anything else. Um, or, you know, just a, a slight transfer movement. But yeah, I think, I think, uh, a four finger release more or less just changes the whole tension in all the muscles in your hand. And, you know, you can feel you, you wiggle a finger and you feel tension move all the way up your forearm into your elbow. So when yeah. you think about that, you know, just the, the change in tension can do quite a bit to the angle of the reason. I mean, you're, you're talking from the click to the, to the bang on a hinge release is like 10 thousandths. You know, it's like the thickness of a paper, maybe a little more. It's very small. amount. Yeah. So it's, it's super finite movement. So super finite movements within your hands make a pretty big difference. Okay. What about in the context of a thumb type release? Um, hard for me to say being, I don't shoot one a lot, but, I would imagine it still works out the same, you know, a a, a four finger thumb when I shot one was always a little bit more difficult for me to actually pull through. And I think that has something to do with it's it. Yeah. My, my hand doesn't uh, pull independently, meaning and that's not a good way to explain it. But for me, it, honestly, a two finger thumb release seemed to work the best because then my ring finger, and my pinky, could actually pull back through which effectively moves my thumb back as well just leaving my my first two fingers my index and middle leaving those to basically elongate um the thumb moves back triggers the barrel i don't have to subconsciously or i don't have to consciously think about it colin in the uk um says he started listening four or five episodes ago thank you colin says he's almost at the end of a 12-week beginner's course in recurve target archery, and he's enjoying the sport so far and will definitely be joining his local club in the next couple of weeks, which is one of the nice things about the U.K. There's plenty of county-level and you know, yeah. local-level clubs, tons of them, lots of opportunities for people to get into the sport. As a beginner, there's a lot of things to remember, but I feel like I'm starting to get consistency with the basics, stance, posture, anchor point, release, etc., resulting generally in some decent groupings at 18 meters indoors with the occasional stray arrow or two. Last week, one of the club coaches noticed I was holding my breath through the entire shooting process. Mm. I didn't realize I was doing it. I'd never really given much thought to the breathing process before this. Now, of course, it's all I can think about. All of the club (laughs) coaches think to have a different thought on the matter. I've tried various things, breathing into full draw, then exhaling prior to release. I'm anxious to start off on the right foot with this and settle on a consistent breathing process. So I would like to know, is there a standard way most pros do this? And I'm interested to hear how you guys do this. So that's Colin. And that's a good question. Yeah. I'm, off the top of my head, I don't even know how I do it. You know, something just, it, it is a subconscious thing. But I, I do know about 2012 or 13, I was actually, I was shooting the Idaho Open and I was thinking about this and then we were at dinner and we were all talking about it. And, you know, Tim Gillingham had a, a, a opinion on it. Of course, he's always, he's thought over everything, you know, and, uh, we were all talking about, it. I, I think what I do is I take a breath, draw the bow and then slowly exhale. If I remember right, that's how I do it. But now, now I'm going to have to think about it and I'll probably be thinking about it, you know, in a shoot off arrow or something like that. Well, you know, it was uh, I think it was Rick McKinney that pointed out to me one time that the best way to screw up somebody is to ask them, so what are you thinking about at full draw? Yeah. Because if you want them to start thinking at full draw, that's that's a guaranteed way. But, you know, Colin's question is legitimate. And um, 
let's talk about the importance of breathing in the context, the bigger context, really, of rhythm and timing, okay? Colin, you're going to discover, if you haven't already, that focus, rhythm, and timing are elements that are necessary to repeating your shot over and over again. And focus means before you initiate the shot, you're really working on trying to visualize what it is you want to do or, you know, be in the moment, be on the line, be however you want to describe it, be there, okay? Rhythm means doing all your motions kind of with a rhythm, you know, just just like a music track would have. And then timing is that essential element of when you're ready, it's it's ready to go, that's timing. So focus, rhythm, and timing. Now, breathing can be an important part of that. Now, one thing you can do is be deliberate about this. And, and the nice thing about being deliberate about your breathing pattern is it anchors your conscious mind, makes you focus on that, which allows you to do the rest of the stuff. Now, you may or may not be at a point in your shooting when you've repeated enough that your subconscious can execute the shot without you having to think about what's going on. You might not be there yet as a beginner, but eventually you'll get there. Yeah. And I think that actually focusing on your breathing is a very useful tool. And I'm not going to tell you that you need to inhale as you draw and slightly exhale as you release, but that's not a bad plan. Although there's plenty of other ways. Some people actually do hold their breath through the shot. Yeah, you can see their face. You just watch them, you know. So there is no standard. There is no, it's individual. No right Some people don't actually pay attention to it, but I think it's important too. I, you know, I do long distance rifle shooting and their breathing becomes really important. Yeah. You know. Hugely. I, I would imagine most uh, top level shooters probably don't think about it. You know, they all, they do the same thing time and time again. And I, I would guess half of them don't know what that is. That's right. Uh, but they're doing it the same again. You know, yeah. just kind of. But it's like consistency. Said, it's consi- It's another yep. element. Remember, Colin, that the essence of our sport is doing the same thing over and over again the same way. Which is why we don't teach you to do a triple Mobius every time you shoot an arrow. You know, you could <laughs> shoot an arrow consistently if you were perfect doing that. But we're trying to keep it simple here. I right? don't know what a triple Mobius is. It's a it's a complicated ski thing. Okay, I assumed skiing. it was like a flip or a turn. It's a, flip. It's a okay. triple flip as you rotate and turn and right. rotate and never mind the point is it's a complicated thing to do <laughs> and we don't want it to be complicated it's, it's not a consistent movement it's consistent if you're perfect but nobody is right so all i'm saying is keep it simple same thing with your plan for breathing have a plan that's your start so mm-hmm. hopefully that helps answer your question there colin not to uh not to make light of it because it's important that's a good question Dear George and Big Cat Steve, um, David says that he purchased a set of Eason X7 Arrows, a limited edition set that was released for the 1984 Olympics. He'd like to restore them. His questions are, what's the best way to remove the current fletching and points without damaging the shafts? The current fletching and points are beaten up. and I'm having an especially hard time getting the points out. Did you shoot these? I, uh, sounds like they were shot. Sounds yeah. like it, yeah. Were those, I assume, aluminum? Those are the, yeah, they're, they're blue X7s Okay. with an Illumaprint pattern with the logo of the 84 Olympic. I've got a set. And um, so he's asking that question, how to get the points out. Second, any idea what the typical fletching and points were back in 1984? I'd like to put the shafts in the same state as Daryl Pace and Rick McKinney would have used but I can't determine based on a Google image search. Well, David, here's the truth. Rick and Daryl did not shoot X7s in the 84 Olympic Games. They shot the original Easton AC arrows, which were black 
and skinny first ones. And with a yellow label. So they didn't shoot those those nice blue X7s that you have. They actually shot original Easton AC arrows that Jim Easton had, had first produced back in 1982. So, um, I you know, I don't know how to get the points out of those. I've never even thought to shoot them. And I, as far as I know, mine have never come out of the case. I've never seen anybody actually shoot those. So I'm sorry I don't have an answer for you, except that the best way to remove um, the points without damaging the shafts is to heat the point only if they're installed with hot melt, which I, I imagine they are then you'll melt the hot melt. But it would have been a higher temperature hot melt than today's Easton hot melt. Could you boil those? No, it's probably done with ferrolite, mm. And they gotta hit they gotta see like two hundred and seventy degrees. So if you heat it up that tight, it will it will it turn the end of the shaft a little That's black? That's the problem. It won't turn it black, but it'll it'll cause the blue to go pale. Mm. And it'll damage the air. I wouldn't shoot them. I would leave the points in, maybe polish them up with a polisher. Yeah. As far as stripping the veins goes, you can you can use uh, MEK or other organic solvent to strip those off. Yeah, just don't get it on the label. Yeah, well, there's no label. Believe it or not, that's oh. actually printed into the anodize. Interesting. So like an Easton baseball bat. That's oh, called okay. an alumaprint process. And the alumaprint process was kind of interesting. It was, you know, what they did was it was like a photoresist. They put down a layer of, uh, uh, they silk screened a logo. Onto, onto the, the part, aluminum, and onto the anodized aluminum, over it. anodized around it, and then burned away the printed part with the ultraviolet light, and then you could go in and anodize that a different color. Very cool. That's how bats were done. Interesting. So, so yeah, you could get the, but but on aluminum arrow, I mean, you can just strip the fletching off with a knife. You're not gonna you're not gonna hurt it unless you're getting crazy. No, but it. if he wants to keep these as a nice set, you know, presentation set, then you'd need to be a little careful with right. the knife. But yeah, for sure, just go in there and strip the veins. Don't worry about it too much. So that uh, that covers the questions from podcast at eastontp.com. Exactly, podcast at eastontp.com. Thank you for the uh, pickup there, Veltmeister. I, I wasn't sure if you were trying to pass it off to me. What what is it again? The Weltmeister shaft is here. No, no, no. Help. The Feldbogen Weltmeister shaft. Weltmeister shaft. Yep. Jawohl. That's that's an awesome title. And I'm I, pretty insistent that I be called the master of the world. I'm looking the into. Yeah, now. well, I, yeah. I noticed that. I'm looking into whether that number of letters will fit on one of our custom Easton quiver belts. I don't think so. Too many letters. Probably. I'm just gonna go with Weltmeister. So big news this week: 15 year old world record has been broken by our good friend Brady Ellison. Yeah. Gunsmoke. It was. It, it felt like. I think we actually talked about this maybe three or four episodes ago. We said what, what world record is going to be broken. I said I think you'll see the indoor men's go. Yeah, and I think we were expecting. I mean, Brady's yeah. tied it so many times. Yeah, I, I was. Maybe I don't. I can't say I was surprised to see it happen at the first tournament of the year because I'm not surprised by Brady's shooting anymore. But for it to happen at the first tournament of the year is is. Uh, probably good for Brady you know if he if his goal is to break the world record well now that's done you know he can he's already had a good indoor season regardless oh yeah absolutely and you know he's only going to get better from here now the thing about you know that's interesting about the situation with Brady first off the conditions weren't ideal right no, this is in a pop tent. Up tent it's in a tent in Marrakech and there was water inside I guess I heard that I heard yeah. they had a delay because of uh, some water getting in there and it wasn't very warm. <laughs> so he was shooting outdoor archery inside with no wind. Pretty much. And he, you know, he was uh, layered up because it was not 
terribly warm. Yeah. The other thing is Brady had a knee reconstruction uh, yeah. just a few weeks ago. Yeah, he's uh, – oh, man, I want to say – I want to say the f- second week of November, he was just walking. He blew just, his knee out in Rio, I heard. I heard he hurt himself it, in Rio. It was – yeah, I think he had had some damage. Okay, so what he had was like a patella that would constantly – the kneecap would constantly – Come dislocated. Ow. Like, and it's been that way for years. That's and it, disconcerting. It happened, yeah, it happened in Rio. So you're just again, walking along and suddenly your kneecap's on the side of your leg? Yeah, something That's like that. That's disconcerting. So yeah, he had to go and get that done. And um I, I think, yeah, the second week of November was the first time he started walking. And he had some pictures up of the of the post surgery stuff. He, he looked like he'd been gone after with a chainsaw. Yeah. This pretty, was not arthroscopic surgery, dude. It's this pretty was gnarly. Like, lay it open. It looked like my knee after my uh, little incident. Yeah. It was it was a good one. So he uh obviously probably maybe that helped him, you know. Maybe maybe just go and shoot the bow and not worry about anything. You're sometimes just happy when, to be walking. Sometimes when you're it's like the, uh, you know, I, I know a shooter, uh, a lady who had the flu and and just had to be dragged out to the line in Vegas and she ended up winning like hands down. This is 20 something years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was it was Debbie Oaks, I'm pretty sure. She had either food poisoning or or uh, a case of the flu and freaking dropped it down there in Vegas. I mean, but, you know, was so sick that it wasn't even funny. Yeah. It was like, get up on the line, shoot your arrows, get off the line, put your head down again. You know? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes when you're, you know, I shot the highest score I've ever shot at 50 meters with a headache that was so bad I couldn't keep my left eye open. So did you just keep closing your left eye the rest of your career? Uh, No, no, I did not. (laughs) That didn't work. But uh, if I ever figure out what caused that headache again. (laughs) I'd probably avoid it. Yeah. I remember a couple of, oh, maybe four years ago or so, uh, Jesse Broadwater, they weren't sure he's going to be able to shoot Vegas. Like, he didn't get on the plane on I remember pra- that. to get there for practice day. Uh, he, I think he showed up on the day of the first score, you know, Friday, first scoring day, and he shot a 29X. You know, he, he hurt his back picking up his kid to say bye. Yeah. And he couldn't walk normally. No. No. It was a bad deal. Yeah. But so, he uh, he ended up doing well. Yeah, sometimes those things uh, creates a you know exterior focus, and then you, if you're you know such a great shooter like a Jesse or a, a Brady, then you just turn it off. You know, you you think about something else, and you just go and shoot. I'm sure at some point, you know, Brady was focusing on his shooting. It's not like he was just out there brain dead and thinking, ah, my knee, my knee. Let me shoot some more tens. You know, but some something there there is something to be said about that. We got a follow up from uh, Chad Simpson who asked in the last episode, um, uh, you know, some advice about knocks, and we told him that he ought to try the deep six knock in the uh, G uni bushing. And uh, so he's reporting back to us on our Facebook here, and what he's saying is that he's had good results with them. Um, he's he's pretty happy with those. So I'm glad that worked out for you there. Uh, he's got an additional question: um, How important is bear shaft tuning? and knock turning and also are there different tuning methods preferred for indoors versus 3d and field so we can chat about that for a bit yeah my experience with uh, so bear shaft tuning i don't do um, and until we can now we're in the context it. of compound here so just so yeah. we are clear yeah right for me for compound which chad's a compound shooter so i'll go ahead and go yep, first yep. i don't bear shaft tune because we don't compete with the bear shaft so 
I don't care. Um, nocturning, I do think, is important. Um, you can. I, I would say it's more important to shoot a bear shaft through paper, turn the knocks until they all do the same tear, give you the same reaction, and then fletch your arrows. Uh, I'd say that's more important than an actual bear shaft tune, if, if you're asking me. But at the end of the day, you're going to fletch it up. If I have an arrow that I think doesn't hit with the rest of the group, I'll turn the knock and see if that brings it in. Um, I, I've been pretty fortunate. My results have been consistent with aluminum or aluminum carbon arrows, where I've never really had to do that. With all carbon arrows, uh, I did that one year with the full bores. You know, I built a dozen, uh, ended up turning knocks on three of them to get them all shooting basically the same hole. Um, that's just the all carbon construction, I imagine, you know, being a little bit harder to get consistent spine. It could have been bushings. It could have been knocks. It's, it's really hard to pinpoint it, but you know, I'm surprised how many people don't look at bushings and knocks and pins and that sort of thing. Um, and replace those if they feel like they have a bad arrow or even the point, you know, even at the highest level, a a guy who's considered to be a, a really high level recurve guru, uh, contacted me saying he was having some problems with arrows. Um, they weren't bear shafting at 70 meters. He had never indexed the knocks whatsoever. Never bothered turning the knocks. I said, well, maybe you should start at 30 meters, turn some knocks till you're getting them coming together and go from there. Yeah. So it's, it's easy to overlook basics. No question about that. The other thing of course is knocks have a finite life. Mm-hmm. You need to change them out. Probably, you know, and it's hard to say for any given setup how often that is, but it could be as little as 100 shots per individual knock, depending on the setup. Yeah. Especially some of the higher energy compound setups. Yeah. Like the uh, some of the guys shooting uh, Matthew's Halon X last year, they were blowing through knocks like crazy, you know, going yeah. from high let off to high energy very Just quickly dumping a ton of power into that thing in a yep. very short distance in time opens it up pretty quick so um chad hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight you know when we talk about bear shaft tuning really the useful aspect of bear shaft tuning is for the recurve and uh it's as, like anything else it's a starting point it's not a means unto itself as steve said at the very beginning of that part of the discussion we don't shoot bear shafts in competition so you know, having um, perfect bear shaft behavior is a indicator of something. It's not necessarily a goal. The other thing is that, you know, if you know that you've got a good tune with a specific bear shaft configuration, meaning that, you know, your, your bear shaft has a certain relationship to your fleshed group, sometimes it's a confidence builder to show up at uh, Switzerland in a couple days and shoot a fletched you know, group and then see where your bear shaft goes. And, you know, if, if everything's happy, uh, you know that uh, the bow traveled well and you didn't have a problem. Yeah, I know a good number of the recurve shooters here in the U.S. at least. Um, you know, they, they want their bear shaft to be at, you know, X o'clock in relation to fletched, and that's how they feel they get the best score. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes that's just based on what other people are doing, and sometimes it's based on individual findings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is certainly something to that. There's no question about it. So right. it's good to have that as a consistent um, check, you know, a way to check whether things are the way you want them. Because the bear shaft can be unforgiving. Mm-hmm. And if you can get good grouping with the bear shaft, 
Maybe that's a confidence builder yeah. for some people. I, I have people tell me they, you know, oh, I shoot my compound bear shafts at 50 meters. I'm like, I don't, I, that's really hard for me to do. Maybe I'm just have never been able to do it well, or maybe I'm not very good, but you know, I've had times where <laughs> I've shot one arrow, went in the 10 ring, shot it again, darn near miss a target. I guess that's just a, you know, a variation of what I'm doing or something, but 50 meters is a long way to be bear shafting a compound. There's a whole lot of stuff that can go wrong in that yeah, distance. I, it, I think if you're going to do it, 20 meters is the best place to do it. And, and recurve, I would say 30 meters. That's pretty much the standard and starting point, right? Absolutely. Uh, Justin Clark wants to know, assuming a knock level setting, what effect does running your knock height higher or lower through the uh, burger hole have on a compound? Uh, well, biggest effect that I see is uh, changes the pitch of the grip. So it's going to change how the bow aims for you. Um, the holding aim, the, the feel of hold. Yeah. So some people like that. Um, I've always been, because on, on Hoyt they have a fundamental geometry where the burger hole is always the same distance from the throat of the grip. So I have always done it knocked level because that's where I've found it works best for me and I've been accustomed to shooting the grip at that angle. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we saw Jesse uh, shooting his knock point really extremely high. And that was basically just flattening out the grip, taking away some of the angle. And it, it's going to work for some guys. It's it's going to not work for others. Um, yeah, it will change the way the bow behaves in your hand. But if it's for you, you got to you got to go find out, you know. How's it going with that new Prevail of yours? It's been good. Yeah, I'm uh, lacking practice. I'm still I'm still easing into indoor. Remember, I, I was saying like normally, and I was talking to Linda about this. Normally, I'm two months in. I've got two months of shooting in right now indoors, like regular, consistent, four or five times a week. And come Vegas, I don't even want to go. You know, so I'm still trying to just take it easy. Um, I'm going to start ramping it up this week, and then. I'll slow down a little bit around the holidays and ATA show, and then we'll be right back into it. But it's uh, that's kind of I, I wish I didn't have to slow down around ATA show. That's always a week of oh yeah no shooting, and, and, and that's then a Neem bad right time after of year. that. Yeah, so Neem, I get cranked up, come back, get the twenty sevens back on the bow, and uh, you know have three weeks to Vegas or something like that. So it it's I'm I'm hoping this year it'll work out well. But the prevail so far has showed me some impressive stuff i am planning to shoot a neem this year so that that'll be a nice change from last year when i couldn't even walk yeah you couldn't even come <laughs> yeah i couldn't <laughs> i couldn't get on a plane so um that's that's a nice positive change um then we've got vegas right after that well there's uh oh lancaster, lancaster in there between too. i can't i think i think it's neem and then immediately the next weekend is lancaster what, what are you hearing from the top shooters as far as their strategy goes are they going to are a lot of the europeans going to go from neem to Lancaster and then to Vegas is that the plan I don't think so because there's a bigger gap this year so last year it worked out they were all three back to back to back worked out if you don't count that blizzard yeah true um this year I think after Lancaster we have two weekends until Vegas so that that'll make uh that'll make it tough for people to do that same thing but I'm sure you'll see some do it you know some of the guys that are full-time Stefan Hansen's of the world you know they might just come over and stay sure I, I don't know possible you know um we jump right into outdoor season on a certain level right after that uh because we're gonna have this massive camp slash competition 
at the Easton Archery Center of Excellence in Chula Vista. Right. Right after Vegas. The entire Japanese uh, team that's, uh, what is that? It's uh, 16 shooters, I think. Yeah. 16 shooters from the Japan national team, eight men and eight women, and a bunch of other countries um, are going to be there for a week of camp and competition. So we're I'm going to be headed down there for technical support, and there's going to be some... Uh, some fun to be had with the round robin event and, you know, uh, some of the archery games that we heard about, for example, from uh, the example we got from our friend Mackenzie Brown, uh, you know, the, the gold game and stuff like that. So yeah. it'll be interesting. And I think it'll be uh, challenging because you're just jumping directly into outdoor season. But again, I don't understand it. A lot of these shooters are not planning to shoot Vegas before this thing. They're just planning to go straight to Chula Vista. Yeah, I don't know weird. why he wouldn't take advantage of I the have opportunity no idea. to shoot Vegas. No idea. Except that, I guess in some cases, it's being paid for by their NOC. And yeah, maybe, they're you know, getting told, here's what you're doing. Yeah, maybe so. It's good to see um, the recurve teams keeping their foot on the gas after the Olympics. I know yeah. a lot of the shooters are probably going, hey, I'm, I'm going to take a little breather. But a lot of the, you know, the federations. Didn't. No, Brady didn't. There are some guys doing that. John though. Charles didn't. He actually did. Did he? Well, he shot World Field, though. No. He didn't? Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah. He did. He shot World Field, then he took his break. Okay. So he's not shooting again until, like, January or something. He told me, me. We'll he's like, I'm sick of this. <laughs> he's going to be the star of France for the next four oh, yeah. years minimum. I mean, you know, if you consider uh, how important archery is in France, and you consider that he's the first guy in 20 years to bring a medal back from the Olympic Games, twenty yeah. almost 25 years, um, from France. I think that's going to be, and you know, he's a great guy. The thing people don't know about John Charles, for the most part, he's an all-around archer. You know, he's not only a fellow Weltmeister shaft, correct? Yes. You know, in recurve, but he's also a pretty avid bow hunter and uh, and obviously a great target shooter. Yeah, you know, yeah, he's been. I think he was a world. The Indoor World Cup champion one year. As yeah, well. and also, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, he's the world field champion from yep. Val d'Isere. And uh, so, you know, winning that Olympic silver medal, that's that's huge in France. And uh, they call him the vice champion. The vice champion, yes. There's a poster. It's a, In fact, you got one on your office window. I got it, yeah. It's, it's an enormous poster that the French Federation published. Yeah, I bet Jean-Charles doesn't know I have a poster of him on my office. Exactly. Well, you know? So, yeah, that's pretty cool. But um, we ought to see if we can get extra copies of that and bring them to Neem. I think that's the plan. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he did tell me, you know, he's like, ah, I'm not going to do much until January. And then, then I'm getting back into it. I said, I don't blame you. you I know? don't blame him either. It's, but it's interesting to see, you know, what I was talking there was some of the shooters, yes, are, are maybe taking a little break. But the uh federations a lot of them are full steam ahead some of them because it's interesting like like brazil i i don't know what's happening there if they've like disbanded if they don't have an archery federation anymore or what you know it's kind of interesting i understand that their their coach is uh no longer employed i guess yeah which is crazy because he worked really hard to they went from nothing to something very substantial to nothing again yeah that's what it feels like Felt like in four more years they might have something. I'm hoping I hear differently next week in Switzerland, but I'm thinking I'm not hearing positive stuff out of what's happening up from Brazil. I no, mean, it's it, disappointing. It, I think that's uh, you know they got a bunch of money and opportunity 
push towards them so they could uh, attempt to be competitive in their home Olympics. And then, you know, once once that was over, their their run, I guess, was over as well. I, I don't know. We'll we'll see. But I, I imagine a number of countries are are going through that same type of ordeal right now. Like, okay, Olympics is over. Yeah, your funding is over as well. Perhaps. In, in, some, in three years, we'll talk again. Some countries that are perhaps, um, you know, I'll just say short-sighted. Right. Because it's a, it's a, it's a six-year process to get to the games. At least. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know the Brazilian process was six years. Exactly. Yeah, it was 2010 so, when they kicked it off. You know, from that perspective, and, and, and they didn't quite make it, by the way. I mean, you know, they... While Marcus really shot well in some World Cup events, they didn't fulfill the promise of the home team advantage. Yeah. I would say they were one they more Olympics more away years. from being Absolutely. competitive and maybe even eight more years away from, from having a real shot. If if things go the way they should and they continue and they manage to continue with their program, believe it or not, they'd actually be in a good position to do well in Tokyo. Yeah. They've got a young squad. You know that there are about a half million Japanese people living in Brazil? I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, who are Brazilian, mm-hmm. you know, ethnically Brazilian, but they're of Japanese descent. Mm. And in turn, there's about a half million Brazilians of Japanese descent living in Japan hmm. who work in uh, the area of Hamamatsu and you know, a lot of the auto assembly work in Japan is handled by Brazilian workers who are of Japanese origin. Hmm. That's interesting. And it makes sense, you know, a so lot of my the, point is that there's a tie there. You know, there's a yeah. there's a relationship there. And I, I I would like to see that leverage in some way. I remember the opening ceremonies were uh you know, showcasing Brazil's diversity. Very diverse country. Yeah, if we think we're a melting pot here no, in no, the US. Brazil big yeah. time, yeah. So a little bit of housekeeping stuff. Uh, let's finish up talking about Marrakech. We didn't talk about some of the other cool stuff out of Marrakech, like Mike Schlusser's five ninety nine qualifying score. I don't even think we mentioned we we that Brady shot a five ninety eight. Did we? We said he Brady's broke the world, world record. record score of five ninety. <laughs> you might have said eight. it. No, I don't think I did. It's so, interesting. Yeah, five ninety eight, and that means that there's still some breathing room. <laughs> you know, I, I would like to. What do you think would be the greater feat? A six hundred. Compound or recurve? I, I think that they are individually great feats. I don't think one's greater than the other. I will say that I think that uh, shooting – by the way, Brady shot 23 size X7s mm-hmm. um, when he shot that record. The previous record was held by Michele Frangilli shooting ACEs. Correct. And the other records for indoor are held with uh, X10 shafts by the uh, on the ladies' side. I would say they're equally difficult. They're equally difficult. But I would also say that the compound shooter has a greater psychological burden. Possibly. Because... It's a smaller target. Well, I I would say just because of the fact that you, you can shoot a 599, you know, and have a guy within a point of you. That doesn't necessarily like Brady goes and shoots five ninety five. He can pretty much count on being actually he was high eleven. Qualifier. His five ninety eight put him eleven points up on the next person, right? Which was the indoor specialist from Italy. Yeah, you know, and then um, you know nobody else was close. So, I mean, that's eleven points difference. You don't see that in compound, like you said. It's a point. I would I would say it would it would be done 
on the recurve side, if recurve shooters separated their indoor and outdoor seasons and treated them completely differently, like compounders do. But we treat indoor typically recurve as like shooters a, also as a oh, got to do this because it's too cold to shoot outside. Yes. So there's also the indoor. Except it's, in, you yeah. know, except now, I think we're seeing the emergence of a couple of recurve indoor specialists. Yeah, but you know, we don't see full teams shooting. You uh-huh. don't see the no. Koreans dedicating themselves from no, 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 November By to, no means, to no. February. No, they to send indoor. their B and C team shooters to indoor right. events for the most part. So I, I think if but. I think if you'd had you know the last sixteen years, if everybody who shot recurve outdoor was turning their attention fully to recurve indoor i I think you'd have seen a 600 i think that there's progress in terms of raising the importance of indoor with the indoor world cup i think there's some there's been some added to it i think the problem is though that the qualifying events are so far flung that the participation level isn't what it could be by that i'm saying if you got to go to marrakech and bangkok to qualify for the first two you know I mean, that's, right. you know, nobody, nobody, uh, it was, I, I your average do shooter it. isn't going to be able to do it. I couldn't do it. And yeah, even the Weltmeisterschaft can't do it all the time. Cause yeah. well, you got, you got a job. You and know. it's, well, it's, uh, you know, I'm traveling with two. It's right. Linda and I both competing and right. Yeah. To go to Bangkok was, I figured the cheapest I could do it was about $4,500. Like, I, I don't really, let's go to somewhere else and shoot, you know? I don't know. I saw an interesting thing the other day where uh, a guy in another sport said there are too many events with that that have you know the appearance of great importance. Whereas it would be better for the sport if there were fewer events that were truly of great importance. Because of focus, what? I, I don't know what his thinking was there, but yes, I think it was focus. Um, you know, think about think about what it does when on December twelfth we have uh, World Cup in Bangkok. We have the Midwest Open in Illinois, which is going to draw a ton of great yeah, you're compound shooters. One. Yeah, and then even the, like local events. You know, the Idaho Open is the same weekend. That'll have a number of Vegas shoot-off participants you're saying there's a downside to having too many choices agreed yeah on some level yeah I, I would almost wonder if you know instead of shooting 25 events in a year what if we shot 12 really good events 12 vegases okay you I, know i see your point on a certain level i also think though that there's something to be said for having those opportunities for the local shooters in those areas agreed. that are getting those events yeah I, i'm not 100 percent in on the 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 other side of it but I mean, think about this for a second. You're, you're some fellow from South Salt Lake mm-hmm. who shoots a camo bow and you show up at Datus and you look around and you got 10 of the best shooters in the world on the line for this thing you shot a couple weeks ago. Yeah. That's a cool opportunity. Pretty cool. Similar situation for this Midwest Open you're going to. Right. Those, those folks from that region. Yeah, they get a great opportunity to shoot amongst the best yeah you know? the folks from the you know from north africa who are shooters mm-hmm. have that opportunity from the marrakech event the folks from you know bank and who knows what that inspires i don't I, know you know it could inspire something really good it's it's probably for the best that it is you know somewhat regional but it definitely takes away you know whoever wins in illinois and whoever wins in bangkok they they weren't facing a full field right you know right it's 
it's not a Vegas. Not That's to my, take anything. Away, point. No, agree. Yeah. Not to take anything away from the people that uh, that placed and won in in Marrakech. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's not a full field. Yeah, yeah. In Marrakech, you know, Neem, however, was, there was another event going on a couple hours away. Yeah, yeah. The, the Kings the of Kings, Archery. It, talk about that briefly. Yeah, so it's a it's a Vegas style event. You know, they shoot, once every two years, or is it no, every they, year now? Kings of Archery? They're doing every year. It'll be every year. Yep. Okay. So it's they're gonna have to figure that out then, schedule wise. Well. Kings of Archery was scheduled, had the event booked, venue booked, and then Marrakesh's date was changed. Oops. Yeah, so kind of had their hands tied there. So Kings of Archery is sort of the revival of the big tournament that used to take place, the Concordia Archery Tournament in um, in Amsterdam. Well, it's, it's different. You're talking like face-to-face? Yeah. I mean, it's really. kind of, it kind of it occupies the same time. Um, yeah, it's maybe a couple weeks earlier, but it's no. It's always around Thanksgiving. Different format. Um, I, I think you're going to see face to face come into existence again. Oh, you think? Yeah. Is that so, rumbling you're hearing from the folks in in, in the Netherlands? Uh, it's a pretty good rumbling. Yes, I'd like to see that happen. Yep. Maybe with a little more uh, fiscally sound strategy of not renting an ginormous you know, yep. competition hall yep. with, with no audience. That know? was the plan. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's just another – but then, then again, we're into a you know another event. Where do we put it? Right. How does it affect the, the other events? Because yeah, well, know, they, they want to draw top-level competition. It's but, becoming a tough dance to figure out yeah. the schedule, right? Well, if you're, if you're a real wild, you're on the road at least 30 weeks out of the year. You know, I'm thinking Rio's probably planning to shoot that event that they're having at the Archery Center in uh, Switzerland uh, right after the uh, grand opening. He is. Yeah. Yep. So. so that's going to be interesting. You know, that um, I, I don't think I'm revealing too much here. That's actually going to be a test event in some ways for potential future changes to the indoor target for Compound. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? It's a smaller nine ring. It is. It's and a smaller yellow. It's a smaller gold. Yeah, I don't think it'll matter. Now, they've done this before, you know, going back 15 years, they've experimented with different, they had, they had a smaller, like a reduced size overall target, mm-hmm. a reduced size overall target with a big black dot in the middle. Yeah. They've had a bunch of different ones and none of them have stuck. I think part of it is the major pain factor of completely different targets for, mm-hmm. in, for you know, for a club or yeah. for a for an organizer you know just looking down the street here they're probably staging for the uh you know they got the uh usa indoor the usa indoor mail match the mail in nationals <laughs> the mail in nationals i don't you know i'm not going to get into that all that my my big my big rant about that again but you know how many different targets do they have on the shelf in there uh they'll Does, only have they'll only have one for that well no they'll have two they will have, have two They'll no, no, no. Two. They'll have one. I think they'll... they'll the have point is they can have... The, oh, they will. And they'll have... Well, a that's their choice, though. Correct. That's their choice. Yep. They're choosing to do the triangular one. Or it's a single spot, not a triangular. But same Here's the size. bottom line, though. The bottom line is they ought to settle on one format. Uh, yeah. In my opinion, and Rio and I have talked about this a lot, they showed us the reduced nine ring. Um, I don't think it'll matter. I would say... You want to make a difference, do the same target we have now, but with all the rings, X ring, you know, small 10, big 10, and X stays the same. That's 10. 
Big Ten is a nine, and the rest of the yellow is an eight. Just move the scoring rings one. I'll tell you what shift them. I would do if I were a king, if I were Weltmeisterschaft. I would probably not screw around with the target until there were multiple perfect scores posted. Agreed. Because yeah. what is this? What is this doing to the club shooter? Making it harder. Yeah. And yeah. And is that really a great idea? No. That's why it. it uh, even my suggestion punishes them. You know, now they they catch yellow and they're a nine. If you do it my way, they you catch yellow, you're an eight. I'll give you another example. There's plenty of guys that like to shoot the NFAA blue target round. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. huge in the Midwest and the East. And one of the reasons it's huge is it gives you bragging rights. You can shoot a 600 on that thing without batting an eye. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I shot a 300. Yeah, I shot 22 X's, but, you know. <laughs> right. They're not, they're not mentioning the X count, but, you know. Right. The, what you have to understand is the five ring on that thing, you know, it, it goes uh, five, four, three. Correct. X, yeah, the, five, four, three. Yep. The, yeah, the five that ring. That five is, ring is the size of the gold. Yeah. It's the entire freaking gold yep. on a feet of target. Yeah. So if you can hold if you can hold gold, Vegas you're good. gold, and if you, you can shoot a three hundred and five spot. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. There's all these guys around there that have the boasting privileges of saying, I am a three hundred shooter. Uh huh. Okay. And that's cool. I, that I got close. no problem with that. I think that's awesome. That's the club level shooter. Yeah. You're, you're giving something to that club level shooter. Now, if you're making this target smaller, harder to hit. You're taking away that that 300 is already going to be hard to impossible on a feet of target for a lot of compound people. Mm-hmm. Now you're making it really difficult. I'm talking yeah. Vegas 300, not even a you know WA 300, right? Like what Mike Schluser was able to shoot, right? So you know I don't think you want to beat down the masses because, because one, one guy, guy shot a one guy shot a perfect score. It yeah. happened one time. If it starts happening regularly, yeah. Maybe that's the time to start entertaining yeah. a change. When you look at and the, if the neem cut is all of a sudden five ninety five, okay. But it isn't there yet. No, it's like eighty seven, eighty five. It's been a, it's been hanging around ninety. Oh yeah, the last couple of years. Okay. My opinion, just make neem a sixty four man cut. Okay, <laughs> and then you you solve a lot of those problems. But even then, it's getting it's getting pretty crazy. The uh, you know you you make it to the second round in neem, and you better have a one fifty. In the bag. Yeah, you better have your game ready to go. Yeah, because I, I lost last year with a 149, you know, and there was a number of ties with 149s. Um, there was only one guy who won with a 148. Everything else is 149 or better. Yeah. So, you know, that maybe maybe that's the idea. I don't know. I don't know what the idea is, but if we could shoot 22 meters, that would be great. I, don't, <laughs> I have no idea. So coming up, we have um – We've got a number of things we've got to deal with all in a row, you know, as usual. It's the ATA yeah. show, immediately followed by uh, the Lancaster, immediately followed by Neem. Other way around. The other way around, sorry. I keep messing that up. Immediately followed by Vegas. What is what is catching your eye from the standpoint of stuff coming up at ATA? Um, we, by then, we're going to know about silly season with the bow companies and the yeah. shooters, which is a popular topic, apparently. Yeah, I I don't know. When when someone talks to me about ATA, a lot of people think ATA is cool. <laughs> and if only they do. Uh, yeah, when it's your job, when, like that's that's my job. I'm starting to seriously question the relevance of the ATA show from the standpoint of of you know is it Selling is product. it really the 
helping industry showcase that it's supposed to be when when all the boat companies have already brought out all their cool stuff well that's what ata has said we should release at the ata show that's never going to happen you should stay the hell out of our business (laughs) you know what what, i don't know don't get me just not that's not going to happen though that's not going to happen for a number of reasons that you and i both know and and some people outside the business know but it's just not going to happen nope not not a chance this year, Matthews did a staggered introduction. They did their target bows, and then a couple weeks later, they did their hunting bows. Yeah. Some cool stuff. Which is a smart move, I think. PSC did their uh, introduction around the same time as Matthews' target bows did. I don't think I heard anything big from yeah, PSC. Yeah, they're usually year. like an October 1. Yeah. So, yeah. And that, I think that was Matthews' was October anything 1. Anything significant there on the PSC line that caught your eye? Um, not not really. They, they have... Uh, like a new cam system, I think. So what's what's the new Matthews slick. hotness? Um, their new target bow. I think they they took the Halon X and made it longer, and then they took their previous like the TRG, the one that was just a big long flat handle, and they gave that a little different cam system. So um, I think their shooters are pretty pretty happy with it. Braden was shooting the the long one, the TRX, I think it's called, or T. No, that's a workout. That's a workout thing whatever their new bow Braden yeah Braden was shooting that that's a, um, it takes a lot to get him to change bows yeah i mean he was breaking world records with a bow from like 2004 well, last he holds year. a current world record with that bow from like 2004 yeah apex seven so yeah it's interesting but um yeah so i think that's i think everybody has released their new product already i don't i don't think there's anybody ah well, we've got something coming up at ata though we do yep and that'll be cool actually yeah it'll be cool think it'll be a good one so that but we're be, you know we're not competing with with a dozen other bow companies out there <laughs> right yeah we're not and it's a little different yeah the sales process on bows and arrows so yeah we don't have to try to get in and get dollars filled up and dating orders placed and yeah, yeah all that, all all that, that. stuff yeah the, so yeah. all the you know what bismarck said about legislation it's like if you like sausage, don't watch it being made. <laughs> Some, similar to sales in archery, right? Yeah. If you like archery, don't get involved in the sales end of things because it's ugly. It's not pretty. Yep. So, all right. Well, let's see here. Just looking at a couple of... Oh, Brownie Pittman beat Ida Rahman in Marrakech. Did you see that? I did, yeah. That's uh, another British woman starting to come into the forefront of, of world archery. Yeah, and that's where, uh, you know, last year... Uh, Patrick Houston, yeah, he kind of had his win there. He of my favorite style of hat kicked up. Yeah, I'd like to think I started that, but no, I guess not. Uh, apparently, he was using uh, a collapsible telescope to spot arrows. Yeah, I saw he looked like a pirate out there. Yeah, there were some good comments floating around the internet. He's you know? standing there with a telescope, Arr! <laughs> with his hat and telescope. Arr! <laughs> I mean, it's a. Uh, now he's got style. People like him in the UK. I'll tell you that. Yeah, he's 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 a unique individual. He is. He's a cool guy, and uh, he he really went over well with the crowd at uh, the great tournament that was put on in Nottingham, the European Championship uh, earlier this year, mm-hmm. which I have fond memories of. That was a great tournament. They they did a fantastic job. John Knott and his team uh, put on one heck of a great tournament. John Knott of Nottingham. Aye, John Knott. Of course, the Robin Hood guy that was running around, that was entertaining. 
<laughs> Did you know there's an actual, I mentioned this before, there's an actual sheriff of Nottingham, and she's a lady. I did not know that. Yes. I have pictures. I'll have to show you sometime. But yeah, uh, the sheriff of Nottingham and uh, and the Robin Hood guy were running around, the Robin Hood impersonator, <laughs> which, you know, he's running around with a sword, freaking long broadsword. I guess, uh, you know. I never thought of Robin Hood as a swordsman, but I guess, you know, I didn't watch everybody, those. Everybody carries a sword. I didn't know. So what's, uh, so you're heading out. Yeah. Um, we, let's see. Got a, got next, a cast of luminaries that are going to be heading to Switzerland along with myself. I think our next podcast will be like the, around the uh, second full week of December then. Yeah, right? that's how it's going to work out. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks. If I don't get back to the fifth. I'm staying over for that tournament. Yeah. I leave on somewhere in that week, seventh. I'm flying over there tomorrow with uh, got Jay Bars coming along for the trip. We've got a uh, uh, number of, uh, actually, all the gold medal winners from Rio and from London are going to be there. And um, the president of the IOC will be there. And, you know, that'll be a, a nice little show, show all, piece for all archery. the muckety mucks of archery. All the muckety mucks of archery, including Greg. Yeah, yeah, he's already over there, right? Yeah, Greg's already already on a little visit to see some of our customers over there in in. Uh, in uh, I'm in kind Europe. of jealous. I'd like to, I, I've spent like six hours in Switzerland. I'd like to go and have a day or two there. I will recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know what? Um, we if we'd planned ahead, would have had you come along. We'd do some seminars afterward. Have you ever been to, you've only been to Switzerland once, right? Just kind of passing through? Yeah, just passing through. I'll give you an example. Lucerne. We mm-hmm. have a great customer in Lucerne, uh, Strabel Bogensport. Okay. Awesome shop and awesome people, Paul and Nadia. And I did a seminar for them a few years ago. Huge turnout. And the best food I've ever had in my life. In Switzerland? In Switzerland. Hmm. We'll have to work that out. You know, there it would have been a good opportunity because there's, uh, you know, not only the event there, the there's something happening in the UK like th- this weekend, I think, or uh-huh. last weekend. I don't even know. Um, there's all sorts of you can just string them together. You could hit three or four events in a row there, yeah. make it worth the trip. All right, let's plan ahead for next year and try to make that happen. All right, all right. Anyway, I think that covers it for uh, yeah. For now this everyone's podcast. just listening to us talk about you know our 2017 calendar. Yeah, but sure what they need to understand is what they need to understand is it has everything to do with the cuisine. <laughs> We're avoiding the places that aren't. You for know, example, Neem. The, Neem is, the worst is meal in Neem is still pretty darn good. Yeah, like you go to Tuabre Sewers, the Applebee's of France. It's still exactly. pretty darn it's good. The Applebee's of France. <laughs> And yet, and yet, it's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's it's incredible. So, and and it goes only uphill from there. Yep. Did I ever tell you about the steak I got with uh, Dean Alberga? No. Oh, it was like ten o'clock at night. I don't know why. You know, you know what it was. It was one of those deals where that Friday night in Nîmes, you're there till ten o'clock, and then you're trying, you're starving. You're trying to find a place right. to eat. We go to Old City Neem. We go into downtown, and we're running around trying to find a place that's still open. There's a couple pizza joints, but we probably had pizza two nights in a row already, mm-hmm. which is not hard labor, I, yeah, just so you know. Also. I mean, it's not bad. <laughs> you know, we're talking European pizza here. And we walk into this place, and 
they sit us down and they're friendly and I turn around and there's a table full of Hell's Angels in full regalia right next to us. Yeah, so you and I ended up at the same joint. Yeah, yeah, you were there. Yeah. 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 Wasn't that good? It was incredible. It was really good. It was steak with a sauce bernese. Yeah, mine was a Roquefort cheese. Okay. And it was just awesome. It was incredible. And the Hell's Angels were well behaved. (laughs) They were. No one, yeah, no one was turning over any tables or anything. And it all worked out. And that was, you know, that was a typical meal in Neem. It was fantastic. Yep. So yeah. I bet everyone's pulling over at the drive-thru right now like, oh, man, I'm hungry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. So remember, if you want us on your seminar schedule. <laughs> start just, booking early. Start booking early. And hey, you better, if you've, uh, you better have some excellent fare. If you've got questions for the podcast, please uh, fire them off to podcast at eastontp.com and we'll put up a uh, post on facebook uh, sooner than we did for this podcast yeah we only gave them like 15 minutes literally and we still got a bunch of questions we'll, so that we'll was put nice. one up uh, like on the monday or so when we both get back and yeah and then we'll uh, yeah. we'll we'll record on wednesday of next week yeah and, fall or the the week of following uh world cup bangkok there you go and midwest open there you go so we'll uh we will uh, look forward to your questions. Steve can be uh, viewed and seen on Instagram and Twitter. Yep. Steve Anderson. 88. Steve Anderson 88. Aren't you going to change that to Der Weltmeisterschaft? Uh, no. I'm going to leave it as is. Weltmeisterschaft might be hard for people to spell. Uh, they might switch the E and the I in Meister. I'm going to work on. No, it's always EI. People might switch it. All right. You're possibly correct. It's it's harder to say too, which makes it cooler. Maybe I'll put it in my little bio though, the Weltmeister Shaft. The Weltmeister Shaft. Yep. I like it. I think that's cool. I wonder if our German listeners cringe as much as our British listeners do when I do the Scottish accent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know they hate that. They hate it. I'm sure. Yeah. And I don't blame them in the least. No. Well, anyway, I think that just about sums it up for this particular episode, which is by the way, episode number 40 really it's we've made it to 40 episodes four zero i wonder if we'll make it to 41 let's hope for the best (laughs) thanks everybody for listening end of show end of show